We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Ever since clocks and phones started automatically updating with time changes, our attendance on this Sunday has increased over the years, so uh, grateful for technology. It is good to have you here today, uh, here in Bellingham, those of you joining us in Skagit, so glad you're with us there, and in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God and online, uh, thanks for being here. You know, there are times in our lives, in different aspects of our lives, uh, in relationships, in career, finances, whatever it might be, there's times in organizations, in businesses, times in ministries, times in movements where something happens where it's, it's like this defining moment. <clears throat> and you can look back and you can point back. Maybe there was a, a line that was drawn in the sand. There was a flag that was, that was planted, but it was, a, it was like the, the tide turned and, and nothing would ever be the, the same. And you would point back to that time or that conversation or that realization or that moment, that aha moment when things changed. And, and everything was different from there on out. Uh, a few years ago, Gladwell wrote the book Tipping Point. It was kind of like that, that. That shifted everything and it was never the same. Years ago, Faith Hill sang about um, that, that pivotal moment. Of course, she was talking about a kiss. So forget that idea. Let's go to different lyrics. Green Day uh, sang this song, you know, another turning point, a, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the wrist and directs you where to go. Kind of a little bit of this destiny. But then in the course it says, um, there's something unpredictable, but in the end it's right. And it's not just to chance, but today we're going to look at that point in Jesus' life with him, with his followers, with his movement, with his kingdom of God. That was kind of this tipping point, this fulcrum, as it were, that nothing would ever be the same. And the passage we're going to look at today is, is one of the most profound sections of Scripture where Jesus teaches some things that happen that I feel really woefully inadequate to um, to even present this, but I'm praying that God will use his word uh, to transform our lives. It comes at a time when, when Jesus' ministry was like rising, it was like the apex, it was the zenith, it was a pinnacle, things were going great. If you've been with us in this series in the book of Mark, it happens right in the middle of the book. Today we're going to be at the very end of chapter 8 of Mark, if you want to turn there. And as uh, we've mentioned, Mark has 16 chapters. This is right in the middle. Mark points this as this would be the, 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 the tipping point, the turning point, the fulcrum. Things will change from here on out. 
And in the section that we're going to look at today, we see where Jesus finally fully reveals his identity. He's been kind of tipping his hand. Now his full identity is revealed. In addition to that, he gives this illogical, nonsensical, counterintuitive strategy for how he's going to bring about this kingdom to bear on this world. And then he tells his followers how they can invest their lives for the greatest impact that will go beyond their lives. Now, up to this point, he's been revealing a little bit of himself. He's been pulling the curtain back. They've seen that he's, he's the Lord over nature. I mean, he calms storms. He's the Lord over the material world. He, he feeds 5,000 and 4,000, breaks bread and, and multiplies it. He's the Lord over the, the physical world. He's healing the blind man or the deaf person or even raising the little girl from the dead. He's the Lord over the spiritual realm because he's casting demons out. He, he's the Lord over the religious world. He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he does away with the traditions of the elders. And now we see all of these pieces come together. And it happens again, as if you were here last week, it happens in a place that is unlikely. As we mentioned last week, in chapters 7, 8, and 9, it's the only recorded time in Scripture where Jesus goes out of the geographical region of Israel and Palestine Last week we saw how he went to Tyre and Sidon up north and then over to the, the Decapolis down in these Gentile areas. And we see this again today where he takes his disciples way up north, way above the Sea of Galilee, up uh, you know, beyond the, the Hula Valley, kind of at the foothills of Mount Hermon. And it says this in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Now this town, Caesarea Philippi, was built by Philip, Philip the Tetrarch. Uh, we mentioned him a few weeks ago with, with Herod. Philip the Tetrarch, he built this city and then he dedicated it to the emperor, to Caesar. That's why it's Caesarea. Basically what it means is this town was called Philip's Caesar town. And so he dedicates it to Augustus, to, to his emperor. So this town, it, even in its name, pays homage to the power brokers of the world. The most powerful man is the emperor of Rome, of the whole world, and Philip has his own little kingdom and he's trying to have his power. But what else is significant about this town is that it is a center of, of, of pagan cult worship. In the old days they worshiped Baal there, this time, they begin to worship Pan. Pan is that, the half goat, half man god. You know, that, that Pan with the Pan flutes. You remember Zamphir? You know, okay, never mind. But, but Pan was this god of fertility, and so there were some uh, just immoral practices that happened. In Caesarea Philippi, at the base of this large cliff, was a temple, this pagan temple. And underneath this temple was this cave, this grotto, and their water flowed out from there. One of the headwaters of the Jordan River. But it was believed that this cave and this, this water, that, that this was a, like an entrance into the nether world, the gates of Hades, as it were. And there was all of this, this, these really evil practices and worship styles that took place here. So why Jesus and his disciples would be in this region? No Jewish person would go there, and no rabbi would. But Jesus takes his disciples there, in this place that represents the powers of this world and even the powers of the spirit realm. And in so doing, he asked them a rather benign question. It's a question that you really can't get the wrong answer to if you're just honest. He asked them this question. Who do people say I am? 
Now, obviously, there people have been talking about Jesus. He fed the 5,000 Jewish people and their families. He fed the 4,000 Gentiles and their families. He's healed people. He's been teaching like crazy. He goes head to head and ruffles the feathers of the, of the religious leaders. So a lot of people are talking about this Jesus, and he's just saying, hey, what are you guys hearing? Who do people say that I am? And so they begin to answer with some answers that are like, this is, you know, this is what we've heard. Some say John the Baptist, which is a little odd. John the Baptist has just been ex executed, and maybe people had just heard about John the Baptist, and then they saw Jesus, and they kind of equated them, but, but that was a weird answer. And some say Elijah, which we would think, well, that's weird, but they were very aware of Jewish scriptures, and in Malachi chapter four, it talked about how Elijah would come back. You know, he was taken away in, in the whirlwind, and and he never died, and so there was this prophecy that he would come back, so they said, maybe this is it, maybe this is what Malachi was talking about in Malachi 4, and others say that you're one of the prophets. Again, he was teaching, and he was teaching it, it says repeatedly, with authority, <clears throat> like the voice of God, so it would make some sense. Now, what's interesting is that up to this point, the only ones who really know who Jesus is, the only ones who really have a clear picture of his identity are the demons, I don't know if you've been reading in Mark, but even in chapter one, where it says this, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? This is the demon speaking. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus sternly, uh, said sternly. Come out of him. Here's a little, little question. When you're reading scripture and the demons speak, do you have a little demon voice in your head that you hear? You know, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you have that? Have you ever wondered why that little demon voice doesn't sound like an Irish accent or Scottish or English or something or, or deep south? What do you want with this, Jesus of Nazareth? It's always, what do you want with this, Jesus? Okay, never mind. But anyway, what I'm saying is the demons recognized who he was when no one else did. Again, in Mark chapter five, he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. So Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then I think maybe he just kind of lets that sit. Let's them reflect on that. Just a moment of quiet. He says, I've got another question for you. And Jesus asks them one of the most important questions, not only for them, but for us. It's a question that how you answer it changes everything. So Jesus comes in and is like, one more question, but what about you? Who do you say I am? I mean, we've heard what everybody else is saying, but, but what do you think? And I want to tell you, if you're here in this room or if you're watching or if you're in Skagit, this is one of the most important questions you'll have, ever have to wrestle with. Who is Jesus Christ? I mean, is he just a teacher? Is he just a guru? Was he a healer or just a historical figure? Years ago, C.S. Lewis put together this, this trilemma. When you take Jesus and his teachings and his words, you have to come to one of three conclusions. Either he was a liar or he was a lunatic or he was the Lord. And the way C.S. Lewis lays it out, I was like, those are your only options with this guy, Jesus. But who, who, Jesus would say to his disciples, who do you say that I am? And I can imagine the disciples like not wanting to answer that because you could get this one wrong. The other one you can't get wrong. This one's a little different. They're probably going, uh, well, but you can always count on Peter. 
So Peter answers, and he gets it right for once. Peter answered, you're the Christ. I think the disciples went, because no one had said that yet except demons. No one had said he was the Christ. They're probably like, was that the right answer? Is that okay? Because that's either an exclamation of worship, an expression of worship, or it's the ultimate blasphemy, one or the other. And nowhere in between on that one. Like, is it okay that, that he said that? The Christ, Christ is, is the Greek word, the Hebrew word is Messiah. Both of them translated means the anointed one. And what I find interesting about Peter's answer is it's not just Christ, but it is the Christ, which is, I think, an important little detail. With Jesus, is he the or a slash an? What I mean by that is, is Jesus the anointed one or is he an anointed one? Big difference there. Is Jesus the Messiah or is he a Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God or is he a Son of God? Is Jesus the Holy One or just another Holy One? Is he the way or a way? Is he the path or a path? Is he the subject or a subject? Now I wanna be respectful but straightforward with you on this one. Because we live in a very pluralistic world, very relativistic world, a very all-inclusive world where it seems like such a noble thing to say, can't we all coexist? Can't all religions be right? Can't it be right for you? If Jesus is good for you, then great, that's true. If Muhammad's great for you, then, then that's true for you. If Buddha's good for you, that's good. That's, that's, if, if, you know, the, the, I don't know, Sasquatch is good. It's good for you, whatever it might be. And, and it's like, like, no one's wrong. There's no religion wrong. They're, they're all true, they're all right. Everyone gets a participation trophy, it's all good. Let me remind you that Jesus would say, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive claims. And when Peter says, you are the Christ, notice what Jesus does not say. He does not say, oh, whoa, 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 Pete. I'm flattered that you hold me in such high esteem, but that's a little far. I'm just the teacher. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't deny this fact. It's like, finally, someone gets it. And in fact, he says to his disciples, don't tell anyone about it. Like, like he warns, don't tell anyone that you know that I am the Christ. And you're like, what, what's that about? We had this discussion in our small group a few weeks ago. Jesus would heal people and say, don't tell anybody. Now, it's finally come out. You're the Christ. Don't tell anybody. It's like the cat's out of the bag, figuratively. Hopefully not literally, but regardless. Why can't we go tell anybody? And I think the reason is that while Peter gets the right answer to the question, he has a faulty understanding. They all have a faulty understanding to the answer. And Jesus has to help them understand that while you say it's true, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the anointed one, I am the king, it looks different than what you think it's gonna be. See, for them, 
Their desire was to see Israel re return to the way it was in the glory days. The glory days a thousand years earlier when David was the king. That was the great time. They were doing well politically, with their military, with their economy, spiritually. Everything was great. It was wonderful. That's what they wanted back again. And that's what they thought the Messiah would come to do. After David, everything just went downhill. Solomon, he did okay for a while, but he messed up. And then you have the kingdom that split with Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And then in, in 722, the, the 10 northern tribes, they're taken out by the Assyrians, and they're never the same again. And then in 586, the Babylonian exile takes the southern kingdom off to Babylon for 70 years. And even when they come back and they rebuild the temple, it's just a shell of what it used to be. And then over the years, there's all of these powers that come in. The Persians come in, the Greeks come in, and now the Roman Empire, they haven't been independent. They haven't known freedom. They haven't been great like they used to be. And they long for this, this bringing Israel back. Make Israel great again. Little red yarmulkes they would wear around. Let's make Israel great again. Let, you know, and, and let's have a bloodbath. Let's overthrow Rome. Let, let's do this thing. And Jesus is trying to help them understand that while he is the Messiah, it's not going to happen the way they've always thought it would, that there'd be this big war, this big, this big bloodbath. And he warns them to be quiet. And then he begins to teach them. He begins to teach them that the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, not just because he identifies with us in our humanity, but because it has messianic roots back to Daniel chapter seven, that the Son of Man would come and he would set things right. But he says, I want you to understand that it's not the way you think in the way that all of Israel thinks, in the way that generations have thought this is gonna happen. That Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of Man, he is the one who is coming. And with this, he is not going to overthrow the Roman Empire, he's gonna usher in the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God would not be a kingdom of this world, it would be a kingdom for this world. And this kingdom would come in in a, in a way that was subtle, like, like yeast in, in dough, like salt, like, like a mustard seed, starting small, but it will change everything. And it's gonna happen in the way that you could never even imagine. And the things that he would say in this next verse, we cannot even imagine how outlandish they sound, how absolutely ridiculous they sound. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. For us, 2,000 years later, looking back, we say, well, of course, not for them. We understand, many of us know about Isaiah 53 and the suffering Savior. They knew about Isaiah 53, but they never thought that would be the Messiah. That was some servant of God that would come and suffer, not the Messiah. And, and to be killed, Messiah is not going to be killed. And they completely miss this one after three days. They, they don't even hear it. By the time he gets there, they've already checked out because they're so lost on this whole thing. And what may be the most important and overlooked word in this whole little phrase is the word must. Must suffer. Must be killed. Not might suffer and might be killed not possibly could suffer, not even will, but must. Like there's necessity. It has to happen. It's planned this way. 
And the religious leaders, they're saying Jesus must die because they want to eliminate this threat that he is. Jesus comes along and says, they're right, I must die. But it's not to eliminate the threat. It's to eradicate the punishment and the consequences of sin. And we don't have time to go into all of this, but in Hebrews chapter 9, we studied this a few years ago, when it talks about the, the sacrifice of Christ and the necessity for this sacrifice, that on a cosmic level, it must happen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it says, in fact, the law, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, clear back to you know, the Levitical laws, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There has to be. It's required. God requires it. This whole idea of blood in, in the Bible, it's equated with life. So my thought is, okay, well, if it just requires a life, then, then why couldn't Jesus just go on with his ministry and die of old age and let that be the one? Just, that, that's the life that's given when he dies naturally. But this concept all the way through scripture is not just died of a disease or died of old age. It's required that it was a life that was taken or given. A life that was taken or given from the very beginning. Let me just quickly, when Adam and Eve sinned, they're filled with guilt and shame, they're naked, and what does God do? In his grace, he covers over their shame and their guilt with the skins of animals. In order to do that, the life of an innocent third party, these animals who had done nothing wrong, their life is taken to cover over the shame and guilt of Adam and Eve. Do you see where that's going? And then later, when God creates a covenant with Abraham that, you know, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, he cuts a covenant and takes the life of innocent animals and passes between them to, to establish this relationship with the Passover in Exodus. It was the life of a lamb, the blood across the doorpost that would spare their lives. In the Levitical sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, it was the life of an animal. And it's all pointing to Jesus that would be the Lamb of God, the final sacrifice, the one that would take our place. It must happen. It was required. John 1, uh, 1 John 2, 2 says, he is the atoning sacrifice. The, the, maybe some of your, uh, if, uh, maybe if you have King James or some other revised standard, maybe it says propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Two things to notice. The exclusivity. He is the atoning sacrifice. Not an atoning sacrifice. Jesus is the only religious leader that would or could be the atoning sacrifice. Very exclusive. This sets him apart. But look how inclusive. Not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Yes, Jesus is set apart, but he says, and I do this for everybody. This must happen so that the world can be redeemed. And he goes on, and it says that he spoke very clearly, plainly about this. In fact, if you read ahead, again in Mark chapter nine, again in Mark chapter 10, he just says almost verbatim, he keeps adding a little more detail. I've gotta be betrayed, I've gotta be crucified, I'm gonna come back from the dead going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to come back from the dead. He says, even after the resurrection, we're like, what did that? They're like, what? What? He says, didn't I not tell you this? You know, just as he had spoken. They don't even catch it. And he comes back to this. It's, it must happen this way. This is a part of the redemption plan. 
This was God's design all the way along. And as the fact that it must happen is that this death and this resurrection, but this death, it would, it would be a payment and a demonstration. And this is so important for us to understand because so often we think of either God as this holy, just, evil, you know, wrath-filled, not evil, but wrath-filled, holy, just God, or this loving, gracious God. He is both and. That the payment is because he is a holy God, and when there's sin, there is something that has to be paid. His justice requires it. It demands it because he is holy and because he is just. And I just want to say, I am thankful that we have a just God. But he says, because I am loving and gracious, I will demonstrate my love and my grace by being the payment that I require for your sins. Isn't that beautiful? Here it is. It is this payment for our sins, but a demonstration of his love and his grace. So Jesus speaks about this plainly, and Peter, Peter who's just made one of the most profound confessions, now falls into the deepest of confusions. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> like Peter says, Jesus. Now listen. And you would think he'd say, hold off on that whole death thing. You're upsetting the children. It wasn't just like, eh, kind of hold off. This word rebuke is the same verb used when Jesus would rebuke the demons. Peter is rebuking our Lord. Only Pete. <laughs> Here he is trying to rebuke him. Saying, don't, don't talk about all this, you're going to die and be crucified stuff. And we might think on the surface, like, well, that's beautiful. It's, it's his loyalty to his Lord. He's protecting his Savior. He, he wants the best for Jesus. Eh, that's, that'd be good, but I wonder if maybe this isn't quite as altruistic as we paint that to be. I think maybe Peter has run the if-then scenario, us, him. If they capture him, they capture us. If he dies, we die. They kill him, they kill us. Maybe this is a little bit of self-preservation. Like, Jesus, hold on. We don't want you to die because we're gonna be right there with you. And then I've always just kind of just skimmed right over this verse. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples... This would be a great discussion. Peter pulls him aside. I'm sure the other 11 see what's going on, probably even hear what's going on. But Peter's trying to make this little private conference, and Jesus looks over at the other 11. What's he thinking? Why is he looking at them? No doubt he has love for them. Maybe he's concerned, will they ever understand? Will they be like this as well? Maybe it's like, hey guys, I'm getting ready to tell Peter something, but I really need you to listen because it applies to you as well. Because maybe there's gonna come a time when you're gonna be tempted to go your way instead of God's way. I want you to hear this. Whatever it is, he looks at the disciples and I think draws them in. And then he says these things. He rebuked Peter as if to say, if, Pete, if anyone's gonna do the rebuking around here, it's me. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Ouch. Harsh. Jesus has just been calling Peter the rock, Pedro. Now he's calling him Diablo. You're the devil. You're Satan. Hey, I wonder, this is a speculation. I wonder, what if, 
Because my whole life I'm like, oh man, poor Pete. What if? What if Jesus is not talking to Peter at all? What if at that moment Jesus says, Satan, you have always tried to do this. You've always tried to derail God's plan. It happened in the garden when you tempted Adam and Eve. It happened to me two years ago when we were in the wilderness and you tried to get me to go the way of the flesh and not the way of God. And what if in that moment, it's almost as if he's speaking in the spirit realm, get behind me, Satan, I see what's going on here. You're using Peter as your patsy. This isn't about him, this is about you and me. Maybe. And all you have in mind, guys, are the ways of man, not the ways of God. I want you to see when you're tempted, there's something going on beyond just that temptation. There's something going on deeper. It's about who is Lord and whose will is going to be done and whose work is being accomplished. And maybe he says that to them because he knows that they're all going to be tempted in just a short amount of time to betray him, to deny him, and to abandon him to do exactly what Peter is telling him to do right now. And if Jesus falls at this point, it short circuits the whole redemption plan. And Jesus says, enough. And now, it's not just the 12. He goes on, and he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Now he's got the 12 and some other people. And Jesus prepares in these next five to six verses, and we won't have time to go into all of it, but I encourage you to spend some time in these verses. Jesus prepares to give them some of the most profound, deepest truth that is life-altering, that will shape their life, their death, and eternity in a short amount of words. And again, speculation, what if? What if part of this speech is not just to speak deep truth into their lives? What if part of this speech is for himself? When there's this temptation to walk away, to remind himself of this is why I'm here. This is the resolve that I have. And what if when he says these words, it's not just a time of deeper teaching. What if what he's trying to do with his 12 and the crowd is to paint for them a vision of the future, is to inspire them, is to see, believe, and call out the best in them, is to call them to something greater, not just emotionally work them up, but to give them a focused resolve of this is what you can do with your life, this is what's most important, this is worth investing everything into. I don't know if you've ever had those, those seen those scenes. I, I remember the very first time that I saw Gladiator, I was at a, the Colossus up in Canada, sitting there with my friend Tim. We're watching Gladiator. And there Maximus has that speech and says, three weeks from now, I'll be harvesting my crops. And they're getting ready to go into this whole deal. And he says, and if today you find yourself walking through a green field with the sun on your back, don't worry, you're dead. You know, that kind of thing. And they're all laughing. And then he says this, brothers, what we do in life echoes in eternity. And I'm sitting in the theater going, yeah, let's go, charge the screen. That line was so inspiring. You guys are all like, really? <laughs> that line was so inspiring to me. What we do in life echoes in eternity. That will preach. That's our life. That's our calling as Christ followers. I, I remember the very first time I saw Braveheart, that, that famous speech. When William Wallace is there before all of his men, in fact, let me read it to you. I fight and you may die. Run and you will live, at least for a while. 
and dying in your beds many years from now. Would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom? Ha! Yeah! Let's do this! He says, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. Let's live, let's die. Okay, so those kind of moments... And it just inspires. And again, it's not just emotional hype. It's like, this is what we do. Invest your life in something greater than your life. You don't have to survive. You can have a bigger impact sometimes in your death than in your life. And Jesus brings the people together. And I just wonder if maybe it's not just, hey, take this down. This is a deep truth. What if it was a, a vision casting, inspiration, calling out the very best in them? Because what he says causes the words of Maximus and Wallace to pale in comparison. Jesus says to them, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good? What good is it? For a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Live your life for something greater than your life. Don't waste it. Leverage it. Don't spend your days. Invest your days. Make a difference. And in the few short minutes we have, I want us to just look at a couple of these statements. And, and he goes on from there. I didn't even, didn't even read the whole thing. But in verse 34, he says, if anyone would come after me, he had already invited them to come follow him. He said, let me tell you what it's going to look like from here on out. It's been a lot of fun up to this point. But if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We need to remember that when he says take up his cross, that wasn't metaphorical to them. That's metaphorical to us. We'll say things like, well, this is just the cross I must bear. It's a metaphor. Not for them. It was a reality. They had seen the Roman crucifixions. They had smelled the Roman cru crucifixions. The Romans would leave the crucified victims on the cross while the birds pecked the eyes out of their, out of their heads, while the, the flesh rotted away as a way to intimidate, to keep them in line. And Jesus says, you might have to take up your cross. But look what he says. I'll be the first one. You'll follow me. 2,000 years later, with, with hindsight, we get all this. They didn't. And Jesus is already predicting that he'll be the first one to go to the cross, and to do this, he says, you must deny yourselves. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary in the book of Mark, points out the fact that there's a big difference between self-denial and denying yourself. Big difference. They're not, they're not synonymous. Uh, self-denial. Some of you are aware, some of you have no clue, but some of you are aware we're in the Lenten season, that this is Lent, 40 days leading up to Easter. Okay, some of you are 
dryers, all that comes to mind when you think Lent. Um, <laughs> in this season, some give something up in preparation to prepare their hearts for the resurrection of Christ. That's, that's what Lent, you give something up for Lent. And, and that's, that's like, you know, you're kind of just saying, well, I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to eat this, or I'm not going to have this, or I'm not going to, you know, I'm giving this up for Lent. For this season, um, I'm denying, you know, I, it, it's self-denial. I'm just not going to do that. But what he's talking about denying himself is far more comprehensive. It's not just an item. It's not just chocolate. It's not just the cigarettes. It's not just the whatever internet. It's, and it's not just for a season. This is far greater. It's beyond just a sacrifice. It's surrender. Do not just say for a season, I'm going to sacrifice this. What Jesus is calling them to is a life where they say, it's not about my desires anymore. It's not about my will anymore. It's about yours. I'm going to put my will and my desires away. I grew, like many of you, I grew up in church with that great, great hymn. It says, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. Because this surrender thing is a daily reality. God, this is yours. And Jesus says to them, this is the way to have life. And he goes on. But whoever wants to save his life will lose it. He gives this paradox. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. You think you want to hold on to this like that's the way to do it? You're, you're going to miss out on it completely. You have this idea that somehow losing your life would be the end. I will show you that losing my life is just the beginning. It's how we live. And if you lose your life for me, not just, I'm not just saying throw yourself away recklessly. I'm saying for me, for my will. You remember when Paul says, and I think it's in Galatians, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because I want the life of Christ in me. And it's not just for me, but he says for me and the gospel. If it's just lose your life for, for me, then we can go off to a monastery. We can go off to a convent. We can go off to a, a, a cave and be a hermit, just me and Jesus. He says it's not just for you and me. It's for the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, this, this news that will change the world. That you would give your life for that, for this kingdom. The kingdom that will go on long beyond the Roman Empire. And maybe what he's saying is this. Guys, I know if I were to try to raise up a, a revolt military, with an army, that you would willingly, gladly lay down your life. You would take up arms. You would shed your blood to liberate Israel. You would do that. I'm asking, will you lay down your life and give up your rights for the kingdom of God and the redemption of the world. Far greater than the kingdom of the empire of Rome and even just the nation of Israel. It's the kingdom of God and the redemption of the world. And he says all the way through, from the very beginning, repent. 
turn from, but turn toward. It's saying no so you can say yes to Jesus and his cause and his kingdom and his work. And what they had no idea was that this kingdom that Jesus was starting so small with just this handful of followers would so far surpass the Roman Empire, one of the greatest empires of all human history. And that while they are being persecuted by Rome in a few years under Constantine at the Edict of Milan, that Christianity would not only be legalized, it would become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And after all the emperors had gone and the Roman Empire had collapsed, the kingdom of God would go forward. And thousands of years later, when, when Augustus and, and, and Caesar and all of them are just footnotes in history books, Jesus Christ is being worshipped worldwide. The opportunity to say yes to that, to be a part of that. And at the very end, he just tosses out, it's like the ultimate cost-benefit analysis. He's like, guys, I want you to stop for a minute and just think this through. Like in Isaiah when it says, come on, come on, let's reason together here. Let's just think about this for a minute. You think about this. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Live for something greater than your life. See the bigger picture here. See what I'm inviting you to be a part of. And what is amazing is this, is that 2,000 years later, nothing has changed because Jesus still asks, who do you say that I am? And if I am the Lord, then why would you not live a surrendered life? Why not follow what those who have done before that changed the world, that the kingdom now of God continues to go forward thousands of years later. And this week, as I was working on this sermon, there was some conviction in my life. Some areas where maybe I'm just like, you know, I'm doing good with God, but I'm gonna hold on to this one. All to you I freely give. I think the older that I get, the more I realize that this surrender lifestyle is a surrender lifestyle. It's not a decision I made at youth camp and when I was 13. That was important. But it's a daily decision that I make. God, I surrender again today. Those of you who work the steps in recovery, that's what it's all about. You know that. Surrendering your lives. Now, my challenge to you is this. If you've not wrestled to the ground this question of who do you say that Jesus is, you need to get that one figured out. And for those of us who said he is the Christ, is to go before him in honesty and say, are there some areas that I've been holding on to that I need to surrender? Because I know you want what's best for me and I know that you know what's best. You're a good, good father. You have only my best interest in mind. Willingly, joyfully, I surrender that to receive the life in all of its fullness and to be a part of this kingdom that Jesus came to establish here on earth.